miss last week. Boy, you just don't miss. You never know what's going to happen. Like, you know, some days Steve might say something that's just awkward. And some days the lead minister might resign. So, um, and as much as we talk about that, um, we're gonna, we don't even know when David's leaving, which is very echo as, of us. Um, but the good news is, is that he and his wife, I think she, she, did she accept the position? So they are moving to Indianapolis. Um, so they will be far away, but not that far. So, yeah, we looked at the commute thing, but, uh, what would you be willing to drive four hours a week for? <laughs> probably, probably not us. I don't know. So we're still figuring out when the last day is. David's really awkward about this because he's never resigned from a church before. So it's really great. First time for everything, man. It works out. We're going to miss you so much. But I'm Steve. I'm one of the elders. So you can look forward to some of this when uh, he's gone too. It'll be great. Let's, let's get rolling uh, into our teaching time this morning. A guy named um, Nassim Taleb in 2007 wrote what was really acclaimed to be one of the more seminal books of the last um, 17 years. Like, it was put on a top 10 list of one of the most influential books, uh, list of influential books uh, in the millennium now. And that's The Black Swan, which has absolutely nothing to do with the movie. So don't, we'll get awkward here, but not quite yet. Actually, it would be funny if he wrote The Black Swan. I don't know. I would just find this funny. But actually, he's a scholar who has statistical background. And one of the things that emerged throughout his studies was this concept called the narrative fallacy. The narrative fallacy. A means by which we humans tend to explain things through stories. Now, we don't want to discount all stories and tales and stuff because we understand is that it's part of the nature of the Bible, right? Like one of the power of the scriptures, our scriptures, as opposed to many ancient texts, is that it's rooted within narratives, within stories. But what Taleb is trying to say is that we are so enamored with stories that we will come up with our own narratives and then apply them carte blanche to things in our lives to explain how the world works and we will later find that those were not actually data or rationally driven thoughts but they were just stories that we love so much that we allowed them to consume our lives and it made us dumber altogether Taleb in the book The Black Swan writes this explanations bind facts together they make them and explanations can be another word for narratives here right so how we explain things they bind facts together they make them all more easily remembered so that they'll make them make more sense where this propensity can go wrong is when it increases our impression of understanding so what he's saying is is that it doesn't mean that the stories are bad but sometimes stories by which we structure our lives aren't universally true, and if they fail, it can put us within a crisis. So let me explain something maybe, you know, that fits within this realm. It's what we call, you know, the Protestant work ethic, and you can go into this further if you want to study really the origins of this. But it's the thought and concept that if you really put your nose to the grindstone and work really, really hard, then you will be blessed because of your efforts. 
And I'll admit that I, this is a narrative by which I like to live my life. I like to, you know, I don't necessarily wake up early in the morning, but when I'm working late at night on projects, I like to tell myself, you know why I'm doing this? It's because I'm all about the hustle. And I'm, I'm working so hard that I know that something will emerge out of this. And, and my familial workaholic tendencies play into that. But the one thing that you discover, discover when you're around people is that while some people who work really, really hard have fruits to show from what they've done, there's a lot of people who work really, really hard and it just goes miserably for them. I don't know if you've seen those people or I don't know if you've felt like you're those people. But it's not universally true. Sometimes you can work really, really hard at something and it epically fail. And if your narrative is all around this and it fails, then you have an existential crisis. What do I really, really believe? Well, what we do as a church here is we're always mining the scriptures to figure out what we truly, truly believe. In this series that we're doing right now, Jesus BC is trying to get us to grasp the universality universality easy for me to say, of the scriptures. Because some of us have this narrative within our minds. It's like in the Old Testament, God was just, he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. He's unpleasant to be around. But by the time he gets to the New Testament, he's huggable and lovely and somebody we want to be around. You know, it's all Jesus and it's good. But what we see is that there's actually a thread that runs through the Bible that unites it all. Sometimes the narrative fallacy that we have that's associated with the Bible is that some of us who have grown up in the church were taught that we need to focus on the people in the Bible that God blesses and structure our lives just like them. And as much as that sounds wonderful, I'm going to tell you that it's a fallacy. It doesn't work out. We're going to see that specifically this morning in the life of David. So if you want to cheat ahead right now, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 24. If you have a blue Bible in the pew in front of you, you want to use that, that's going to be page 234. We'll be in 2 Samuel 24. And if you get to that in your Bible, you're going to see that that's actually the end of the book. And actually the end of what used to be two unified books, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. I mean, the Jews actually have that in their Torah as, as one tome. We split it up for convenience. And then actually it goes on to, in First Kings, if you cheat ahead, the, the, the figure that we're studying right here, David, is going to end up dead in the next couple chapters after this. So in Second Samuel chapter 24, page 234 in our Bibles, we're going to learn a little bit about David, but let's just walk through who this is. Understand that this takes place about 1,000 years B.C., before Jesus, about 3,000 years ago. In, in, from our time. And it started when God said, I'm going to allow my people to have a king. They had been clamoring for the king. They, they said, look, all the other countries around us, God has a king. We could use one. And Saul said, and, and God said, okay, I'm going to give you Saul here. Saul, anointed king, was the prototypical ancient king. We see in the Bible that he was a tall, masculine-looking man. And some of you might be like, wait, those are ancient uh, concepts that, that should no longer be followed, and I'm just telling you is that it still exists today, is that if you were a tall man in our society, that you will have an easier time leading than everybody else, and I don't say this just because I'm jealous as a short 
plain, stubby guy. I'm telling you I say this because science has proven out that people's preferences for tall and strong leaders are, is such. And it's interesting that the first king that, that Israel has is Saul who fits that perfectly. Now, this is the thing about those tall-looking, you know, strong-looking people. It doesn't mean that they're actually good at their jobs. A lot of our presidents have been tall. I just want to put that in there parenthetically. I'm just saying. But here's the thing. Saul does such a horrible job that God finally says, look, I'm going to hit reset on this. Now, he didn't totally flip the script because what we understand is, and in his successor, David, David um, was not tall, the Bible says, but it does say that he was like, uh, he, he was the Brad Pitt of Bethlehem. Right? And I say that because he was born in Bethlehem. So if you know your Bible, there's, a, there's a, stri- a thread through there. Is that, you know, Jesus is born in the same city that David was. David was the prototypical team, was king. We don't see that he was tall, but we see that he has such a personality. Like his character traits are so compelling. That in the book before this, in 1 Samuel, that God says, I have chosen David, and he is a man after my own heart. And I remember, and as a young boy, because I grew up in the church in Sunday school, hearing a verse like this, and I was actually taught this, and it's like, you know, you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Like, there's something about that. If God's just saying, you're like, yeah, that's, that's one of mine. That's, that's who I like. That's, that's who you want to be like, Correct? That's what you want to be. And it's interesting too, when we look at just the simplicity of David, his occupation at the time was shepherd, which was one of the lowliest jobs in the ancient world. Because it involved being out in the wilderness with a gaggle, which is not the right thing, of sheep everywhere. And you would be among the sheep and smell like the sheep and care for the sheep. But, but basically what God is doing through this whole thing is trying to set up, what does it look like to be a good leader? Who am I looking for? Well, the prototypical leader was David. And the story that we all know is that David then later, when Saul was facing the Philistines, and there was a challenge where the greatest Philistine warrior, a giant of giants, was going one-to-one against the best that Israel had to offer. And everyone else was frightened. David said, I'll shut his yap. And sure enough, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, the, you know, and then I love it how in all of our artist renditions, like David is like some 10-year-old kid and stuff. He's probably like an angry, pent-up teenager who had, you know, uh, hubris to the extent he's like, I'll kill that dude and I'll chop his head off for God. And that's what he ends up doing. Right? Like David slays the giant. Now this is what's interesting is that this story you're all like, okay, some of this, even if I've spent any time in church, these are the stories that make sense. And these are the stories that we usually tell because it's a character trait that you want to follow and pattern your life after. What I was rarely taught growing up was the PG-13 version of David's life. Even the R version if you would like. Because later, as he ascends to the throne and God is blessing him, there's an instant where he's just bored and out of boredom. Usually the worst things in our life occur. And sure enough, he's just out gawking one day and some lady knows he's gawking and she's like, this would be a good time to take a bath on the roof. 
in the middle of the day to where the king could just see me perfectly. And that begins this role where David thinks adultery is a good idea. And then the murder of her husband is a good idea. And then God punishing David's sin by killing the baby that arrived from that affair. All of these things were just the seedy aspects of David's life. And we don't usually like to talk about them because it counteracts that narrative that we enjoy. Right? You don't have to be the tallest. You don't have to be the best. You can rise up from your low position to become something great because God takes care of you. And you can screw it all up in the end. What I love about this story even goes further to 2 Samuel 24. I love this text. And David uh, Wheatley threw it at me and said, hey, here, preach on this. And this is one of my favorite texts in the Bible because I think it takes the story of David to its end. And also, it's a story that not many of us are familiar with. So as we look at the text this morning, Jessica is going to read with us. And I'm, going to, I'm not going to lie to you. I had to set this up. I'm going to plow through this. But we're going to go through the rest of this chapter right here. And um, usually it's more text than I, I like for us to swallow. But will you stick with me during this time? Because I think there's some important stuff here that is going to show us a bigger picture about who God is even today. So Jessica, will you read for us verses 1 through 4 of Second Samuel 24? Of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders so that they so that they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. It's one of the reasons I love the Bible is because it takes something that just seems completely harmless, harmless and makes a huge deal about it. David goes to his commander and says, look, you know, I'm getting old. I want to see where we stand. Why don't you go out and count every one of our troops and our armament? And then the commander of the army just says, no, 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 no. He's like, you're awesome. There's a lot of them. There's a lot. Just don't make me count them. This is a horrible thing before God. And David's like, no, no, go do this. And you're like, is Joab just some zealot that really is creating his own narrative? Is he struggling? He's just like, you just don't count things like Sesame Street. And the count was a struggle for him. It's not about this at all. But it's actually a lesson of what God is trying to see that I think still stands today. God left pretty specific parameters for his leaders of how they would act. And the one thing that God always demanded of the leaders that he called in his name was humility. And you need to recognize that your success is not directly correlated to how good you are, yet in how much you trust me to protect you and guide you. And if you read the Old Testament, most of the bad things that happen to the people of God are done when they become prideful and say, we can do this without God, as opposed to nestling where he's at. Believe it or not, the scriptures actually speak to this small text in the book of Exodus. When Moses is delivering the law from the Lord, there is something that mentioned how the kings and the leaders of Israel were supposed to even count their people. And we see this, um, oh, and I, can I, I'll come back to that, but let me show the counting. Exodus chapter 30, verses 12 and 13. 
When you take a sense of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he has counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one is to give half a shekel, and this half shekel is an offering to the Lord. So the parameters for counting were this. Count everybody, but when you count, you need to understand that an offering to the Lord per head needs to be made during this sense of, during this counting. So again, for those people who are data-oriented within your job, for those who love quants, you're going to understand is that there's an extra asterisk to this where God says, if you will look at the data, understand that I am still God over the data. Right? It all exists underneath me, and you acknowledge that through offering. So in David's counting here, two things that he does which are problematic. The first thing is that we see no mention of an offering to this. It's not just that God's about the money. What God wants to say is, is it worth it? Right? You can go ahead and count, but recognize that if you count, I'm going to ask for an offering. So when you're doing the math, is it worth a half shekel for each person? Or can you just trust me and say, this is good enough? And it's interesting right here is that we see no mention of the offering. And really, if the king is calling for this, as much as you might say that the payment needs to come from the individual, really if the king's calling this, this should come out of his pocket. So I think that might be part of it. David's just like, look, that's a lot of shekels. All I want to find is a number. This doesn't apply to me. Why doesn't it apply to me? Because I'm a man after God's own heart. I know what God wants. And sometimes in that arrogance, we find ourselves moving astray. The second thing that David does here is notice that he's not counting all the people. What does this say? If you're going to count it, count each people. What is David only counting? The army. Why is David counting the army? Because he wants to make sure if I go to war, I have the armaments to get done what I need to do. So the rest of the people are inconsequential. I just want to find the army. That whole thing plays into this concept of where David is at right now. And that is, is that he is no longer trusting in God's provision, but he's entrusting he is entrusting his horse in, or his, his faith in horses and chariots and armaments. He wants to ensure that he is in a place where he can take care of everything himself. The opposite of what God is trying to do right here. Do you know what's great about this too? And this is what I wanted to show you earlier. Is that within the text, Joab, when he's, you know, before this happens, the other text that speaks to this in the Bible, and there are parallel texts in First Chronicles, in First Chronicles chapter 21, I'm trying to go back, yeah, in First Chronicles 21, basically, <laughs> the writer there says, this is the movement of the devil. The devil is in the details. So it's not like, you know, the devil made all of this happen, but there is something what the, the role of the devil as we see in the scriptures And I don't want to go into a sidetrack within this, but it's just very interesting to say is that this was an opportunity for temptation. That despite David seeing firsthand everything that God had done at every stage of his life, even at the low points where God brought him back up, even when he was older, and supposedly, supposedly, I just dropped that, supposedly wiser, This is supposed to be our destination when we're older, right? Like I'm supposed to be full of wisdom and knowledge. And a man after God's own heart is at this point to where he can't trust God. So again, the application to you and I is pretty simple, right? Can we trust God and what he's doing for us right now? 
What is your census? What are you putting your trust in individually? Is your trust within your, your relationships? Your trust in your personal health? Your trust in your finances? Are there things that you are measuring so detailed because you see that as a high cultural value? Are you using that as a replacement for what God can provide you? David did. I do it. You do it. How can we end that in our lives? Before we solve that, let's just dump on David a little more because it'll be easier. So we're going to go on to the next text here. If you will, Jessica, read out loud verses 8 through 10, please. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Nine months, 21 days. Nine months, 21 days. Slightly longer than a full-term pregnancy, right? Almost about the same equivalent of an academic year. So if you're in school, the president has not yet (laughs) been in office for nine months, 21 days. I'm just saying, it's felt like that. It's felt like much more, but it hasn't. I say all of this, stick with me. That's a long time to figure out one thing, isn't it? If I came to you and just said, hey, nine months, 21 days in the future, here's this one fact I need you to grapple with. Just everything else is, is, is off your radar. Just figure out this one thing and come to grips with it. Just ruminate that on that every day for nine months, 21 days. I think we could figure something out. What I love about this text is that we get the exact days, because remember, David is counting here, and it's almost like God is counting the same time, right? So David's obsessed with this final number of soldiers, and God is just saying, for nine months, three weeks, comes down to this. And it's not until he hears the number that he says, I messed up. One fact could not come to grips with it. I absolutely love that. By the way, parenthetically here, Joab, who, and this is the beautiful thing about scriptures, because in this story, Joab looks like the champ. Joab's like, hey, don't count. It's not good for you. David says, I'm going to do it everything. And he says, fine. In the first Chronicles text, in chapter 21, we see that Joab was just like, this is so bad. I'm not even going to include two of the tribes because it's just so abhorrent to me. So Joab at this time is trying to bail out the king, which is interesting because you'll read later if you follow the scripture that Joab was a punk in his own right. So it's not like Joab did everything right. So you're like, oh, in the story, be like Joab. That does not work out either because Joab ends up dead. Because of what he did. So it's not working out right here. The point is, is that David finally comes to grips with this idea after nine months, 21 days, I messed up. And what's his first reaction? He's just like, God, I'm so, so sorry. Bail me out. I'm just saying, you know what, we're going to move on from this. I just need to have this point to say this. But think about this. (laughs) Are there those things that 
we, through just our stubbornness, don't understand that God's trying to teach us. Maybe there's a lesson that you've been maybe reading something in Scripture or trying to better your life. And two months later, you're just like, I'm not getting this. Maybe you need nine months, 21 days. I don't know. But maybe, maybe just give the time to thinking about these things rather than just making quick decisions and having consequences that will cost you terribly and that's what we're going to see is that the consequences of this costs him very much i'm going to come back to that which is horrible no i'm going to go with it now and i apologize i did my slides this morning which is my admission to you so i'm going to deal with this now because i think it's interesting which and if you've been with us if you're new to us here this week understand is that we are a politically ambiguous church So we have people on both sides of the aisle. So when I use illustrative material, it's not that we're trying to show you which way we lean. But I think that this recent occurrence speaks a little bit to this today. So Kathy Griffith last week was, or or maybe it's even two weeks. I forget the exact timeline. But she was just like, you know what would be really funny if I held a decapitated head of the president? That would be hilarious. And then come to find out that the world didn't think it was hilarious. Even people who, like, are against the president thought it wasn't hilarious to the point that she had to have a press conference where she had to vehemently quasi-apologize for what happened. But let's be honest. And I think she would admit this too. Was she really apologetic for what she did, or was she apologetic that was received poorly? She was apologetic because nobody found it funny. If everybody found it funny, she would have been like, boom, catapult my career into another echelon. But what's interesting is now she's like, this might ruin my career, and it, it will. You know, what's funny is that the collective conscious of Americans are so short now, at least, you know, forgiveness is a plentiful. I, she'll have a career after this. Like, we will forget. We always forget everything. We're forgetful people. But this is what's interesting. It's not like she just set up her iPhone in a tripod and fashioned herself a head of the president and doused it in fake blood to do this. Like she has publicists and some sort of mannequin. Like what what happens when that job order comes in? Like we just need a decapitated Trump. Like okay. Like I'll put that next to the, the cakes I'm making. I don't know how that works out. But photographers, media... There was a a whole collective group around this decision, and nobody thought to say, is this a good idea, bigger, until after it came out negatively. So maybe I just, the reason I I put this here and I forgot about this, is you think about David coming to this point. You're like, is he obtuse, friends? It just shows we humans are obtuse. And again, the reason that we love these media stories is I get the point and just be like, Kathy Griffiths, what an idiot. No, I've done this. It just hasn't made Entertainment Weekly right? You have as well. You've paid the consequences for this. Is sometimes we do not see clearly until the consequences present themselves to us. So the, again, let's go for the narrative fallacy. So the story here would be just never do anything wrong and you'll be fine. Not does it just, it, it only does not fit here. It's not the message of the Bible too. It's not what we're trying to learn from the story of David. Sorry, I forgot I placed this here. I put it in the wrong place, but I made it work there. Lesson learned. Okay? Don't message me your, like, political thoughts. Right? Don't. I'm not going to tell you who I voted for. 2 Samuel 24, 11 through 14. Please, Jessica. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. 
Go tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. If you have children or have had children, or especially if your children are young and can figure this out, there, there is like a little nugget here that you can find within discipline that I think is incredibly helpful. Notice that the Lord says, okay, not only I'm not going to just punish you, but I'm at least going to give you the option for the punishment that you will get. So again, if you're working with children, it's incredibly good because by giving them options, you can figure out really quickly what they truly value. True? So always give them the options. And then when you've enacted the punishment, you hold that one in the back of your head. So you're like, the next time, I'm going to go straight for the jugular and take away their iPhone or whatever, right? Like, it's good strategy here. Notice what the Lord does then. It says, here are three options. I'm going to, and I love the triads here. Three options and each at three different lengths. And the first one is three months of famine. And if you're familiar with famine, or if you've not watched the best movie ever, Interstellar, about blight, you need to get that on your list. Kelly's six. I've watched it 70 times, and I'm not even joking. But it, it deals with blight and famine. And it's the point is that when you run out of food, and especially in the ancient world, you need to have food because otherwise you can't go down to the 7-Eleven. It's not accessible Three years of famine is a very, very long time and would just squash the nation of Israel. Or then there, there's these three months of fleeing for David against the hands of his oppressors. Now here's what's interesting. The three months of fleeing right here, David had something upon which to draw when he thought about this option. One of his sons, Absalom, tried to usurp the throne, and David had to flee and run for his life. David could remember what that was like. Always in fear for real life. Somebody wanting to kill me, especially my kinfolk, right? And, and this idea that you're never sleeping well. And for three months, not the greatest option either, or just this three days of extreme plague on the land. So put yourself in David's mindset. Where was he at this point? Remember what we've said this whole time? The great thing about the story is David is near the end of his life. The closer you get to the end and, uh, you know, even at these big numbers that happen in your lives, right? When you turn 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, just all these different numbers, you start to think as you get closer, what is the legacy that I have right here? And David is in total legacy mode. Why do you think he's counting in the first place, right? Why is he counting these troops? Because he wants to make sure he can go out on top. David looks at the three options. Three years of famine, he's like, I'm not even sure if I'll live three years. I don't want me going out the door with people being like, hey, thanks, king, we're all dying because of you. Horrible option. And plus, it would also infect him as well, right? Because if there was famine across the land, he, he might even potentially starve to death. Three years, he's just like, that is just not good. Three months of fleeing from my enemies. David's also remembering, it's like, you know what? Now with my bad hip and everything, running away from people is not my forte. I'm not as nimble as I once was. 
If I try to run, I could get caught. If I get caught, I could die. I don't like how that option works either. So he settles on the third one, which seems good for him because, number one, three days. Three days. The time period is pretty attractive, isn't it? Because think about this. You're like, what What could really, really horrible happen within just three days' time, right? Like, you know, even putting that out, that, that, that time is horrible. And then I love what David says on the end of this. David goes, and plus, you know what? I'm going to bank on the mercy of God. I'm going to bank on the mercy of God. Again, parenthetically, for those of us who are mired in this Old Testament view, who is just like, no, that's when God was angry. And, you know, this is like, you're like, it's setting up for it perfectly, right? God's getting ready to hit the smite button. Bad things are going to happen. But recognize that David's reasoning in this choice was centered in the idea that, but God's merciful. So he might get started with some plaguing, you know, like he's going to dabble in it and he's going to look and I'm just going to be like, please God, help me. And like, he'll, he'll show me mercy. It's all going to work out in the end. So David at this point thinks he's playing God on his choice, right? But again, what did I say at the beginning of this? When you see options of discipline, it reveals the person. And really, what is David's concern here? David is just like, which option impacts me the least? What allows me to get off the hook the most? That's this option. That's why I chose it. Now remember, what did we read in 1 Samuel chapter 13? This is a man after God's own heart. Restructure your narrative. Because even the best are tools. And as much as sometimes they might exude this air of humility, sometimes the sinful nature takes over and there's not much there. This is just, you know what, I, I, I don't think that the Apostle Paul wrote this about David. I think he wrote it about all of us, but it's incredibly applicable. Because it usually shows the way that we view the mercy of God, right? As if God's mercy is this tap that we can just access when it's beneficial to us. And what Paul wants to make sure is, is that, listen, the, the, the irresistible mercy of God is not to be handled with, by us with triviality, right? That we need to take seriously his mercy and we do that by reducing the sin in our lives. Right now, David's not as focused on the sin. He's focused on the discipline and the punishment and God's going to teach him through this. 15 through 17, please, Jessica. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of our, uh, we'll go Aruna. Aruna, the Jebusite. Yeah. So here's the deal. Plague starts, and this isn't just your mild, like, gentle plague, you know? It's, just, it's not just like some leprosy stuff. This is legit. This is 70,000 people. I mean, if you look in the news recently of the tragedies, these terrorist tragedies that are coming our way, and we see a few dozen people die, our, our hearts are impacted. The death of 70,000 people... Again, this text taken outside the context is why people have issues with Old Testament God. They're like, why is he just so readily to hit the smite button on people who, who were just innocent because of the sin of some doofus, right? 
One thing that the Hebrew text reveals here that was difficult to translators, for translators to convey, but most scholars agree that the word describing people actually irreferen- or is referencing the very soldiers that David counted before that. So if there's something that relieves you, you know, you're looking at, what about all like innocent children who, who just were caught in the fray right here? It seems to imply that the very thing that David was relying on, the army that he counted, God started to decimate. So that might make you feel better. That's one way that scholars like to explain away this story. Because it's like, hey, at least he just killed the soldier. So it was like David started a war with God and that was, that's what happened. As much as you might want to say, okay, that wraps our mind around this. Understand this, is that the thing that we usually struggle with, with God doing this, we put the blame on God, but we let David off the hook. Because we see God's role as executing the punishment, but really, it was David's choice, correct? He's the one that chose this over everything else. We like to remove the culpability. I think that, again, struggles with our framework, one of these fallacies that we have in narratives that we think that, hey, you know, like, sometimes just horrible things happen, and who do you blame? But right here, the blame for these 70,000 deaths are all on King David. Very interesting, right? You hear all about him killing Bathsheba's husband. You rarely hear about him killing 70,000 people because he wanted to count some troops. Seems peculiar. But let's just put this within here. Is that just let's not fool ourselves into thinking that the negative actions of leaders can have far-reaching far, far-reaching consequences, right? The 20th century proved this to us. Joseph Stalin, we estimate that he killed about 700,000 of his own people in trying to assert his power. Adolf Hitler, millions in the Holocaust, in addition to those political deaths made internally over the years. Even Benito Mussolini in Italy, you know, he, his is a paltry 300,000 people that he killed in order to assert his power. You know, that's what the 20th century showed us, is that diabolical leaders can be responsible for the death of many. Again, I I put this up here, and you're like, this makes sense, right? 2 Samuel 24 doesn't necessarily make sense, because David is not this, right? can hate these people. David, I'm supposed to see him as somebody that I'm supposed to be like. And again, this is where the struggle happens within us. But recognize this, is that what really brings David to this moment where he recognizes how horribly he has treated this whole thing is he said, he likens the people to sheep. At the end of his life, he recognizes that his very first task, his first job, really speaks to how horribly he's doing his current one. Because when you're a shepherd, your job is to keep the sheep alive and safe. That's all you're focused on. Hence why, when Jesus was telling stories to people in first century Palestine, he said, let me tell you about this shepherd who had a hundred sheep and left 99 alone so he could just go find the one. Because what Jesus was speaking to there was the essence of what it meant to be a shepherd, which is, I care about all my sheep. And what David realized at the end of his life is that he cared nothing about the sheep at all. He cared about himself. And that was the tragedy that happened as a result. And he's coming to grips with that. Jessica, as he really comes to grips with this, let's 
go to the final verses we'll look at here. Verses 18 through 24. Let's finish this out so we can see the overarching lesson here. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Araunah looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Araunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your, fr- your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David thought, bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. Okay, so... I just have to wrap this up because there's so much here that has implications. So I, I appreciate you all. You're sticking with me really well. Let's, let's see how this ends. Because what's interesting is I was taught this part of the story, not all of it, where it was like, hey, you know what? David came to this realization. He said, I'm not going to take this land without paying for it because that's the right thing to do. And I remember being taught that story is how noble and wonderful is David right here? Like he could have, he's like, no, I must, I will pay for this land. But you forget what just happened. 70,000 people die. And not only that, so what we get this imagery is this death angel is plowing through. And then the city of David at that time was before the expansion of Jerusalem was on a lower part of the hill. So over the hill, David looks and he sees the death angel approaching. And he's just like, you know, no crap just got real, right? Like it's okay. Whereas he's getting these reports. He's like, hey, by the way, people are dying everywhere. He's like, oh, that's horrible. Really notice, as much as we want to give David the benefit of the doubt, it's not until he's like, that dude's next door. I'm really sorry, Lord, right? Like, I figured my lesson out. And once he goes to the prophet, it's like, boom, the death angel stops right at this threshing floor of a guy named Arunah the Jebusite. The fact that he's a Jebusite is important here because even though it was on in the original area where Jerusalem is today, Jerusalem, God's city, at this point, it was still had pagans on it. So Aruna's just doing this thing. He's like doing some work. And he's just like, what's that in the distance? That's a little awkward. I don't recognize that. And then he starts seeing people die. He's like, that must be a death angel. Which I don't think this is how his internal monologue went. But he's like, this sucks. <laughs> like, how do you stop a death angel? Like, I don't know. This is Lords of the Rings stuff right here, right? So... What basically happens is he doesn't know that at the point David comes to the point and just says, stop this, we'll be good. And, and the prophet just says, okay, we'll stop it. So the death angel just stops and Arun is just like, I'm glad I don't live where my neighbor lived because that would have been horrible. I love this because Aruna, he's not even one of God's people. So he's just trying to internalize all of this. So David comes out. So it's the, hey, you're the king of, of the Israelites. He comes out and he's just like, look, this would be land. I need to reclaim this land because this will be ceremonial. And Arun is just like, dude, take whatever. Death angel, I'm cool. Just take my land. 
David's just like, nope, I, I've got to pay for this. And, you know, look at the amount right here, by the way, which was interesting. Is he paid 50 shekels of silver for them. He still got off easy from the money that he was supposed to pay for doing the census. You see what it is? So as much as we might want to say, David paid for the land and somehow atoned for his sin. No! He went to Walmart and pulled out the coupons. And he said... You know, like, no, I'll pay you 50 shekels. And the guy's like, sweet. And he's just like, I still saved a ton of money. Like, do the math, right? Hundreds of thousands of shekels. This is a horrible story. It doesn't end out well, right? But we're supposed to feel good about this. But this is the thing about the scriptures that I love. When we mess up, God redeems. And throughout the Bible, where people mess up, God redeems. What happens to that land of Aruna to Jebusite that, Jabez, Jabez, that, that David got a discount for? It ends up being the location of the temple. His son Solomon builds the temple on that very land. And it becomes this symbol of worship, right? Now again, as much as I want to paint that beautiful picture, let's look at the whole of history. How has the land around the temple fared over the past 3,000 years? It's not done too well. Conflicts between Jews and Muslims and Christians all over this real estate. This real estate has been death since the death angel came over the horizon. It's not been good. Okay? So how do we put this all into our fountain? You're just like, am I a Christian still? How does this work out? Will you stick with me? And you guys, I know I'm running a little long. I told people, I was like, I'm going to run long. But will you just stick with me for this? Jesus... Goes to this very real estate. A thousand years later. And when he is on this real estate. He's just like you know what guys. It's time for a good lesson. And of all the stories of Jesus. This is not one of his best parables. But read this one. And understand that he told this parable on the site. Jesus went to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. He rented it to some farmers. He went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit. So he's like, look, you were going to farm the land. I own the land. Just give me what is due to me. You know, this is a good relationship for you. What happens? The tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant. But that one also they beat up and treated shamefully. And he sent them away empty-handed. And he sent a third and they wounded him and threw him out. The farmer is just saying, I gave you the land. I gave you the opportunity. Just give me what's due me. That's it. Just what, what's required. But then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the error. They said, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When Jesus told this parable, it might have been difficult for the people to whom he was speaking to understand. When we hear this parable, we see the fullness of the story, correct? Who's the farmer who owns the land? It's the Lord God. Who did he send for years? Prophets telling them, change your ways, give God his due, it will go well with you. And they abused all who were sent to them. And then the Lord God said, I will send my son, whom I love. 
maybe they will respect him. And one of the most tragic incidents in human history is that they killed the God of the universe. A myriad of reasons why, but friends, it all comes back to the same sin of David who valued himself more so than the provision of God. David counted on mercy. And what's interesting is on the very steps of the building that had been constructed years over years on the plot of ground that David bought at a discount, the Lord God of the universe taught on mercy. What's true mercy? Jesus. What he did. That is the true narrative of the word of God. Your ability and my ability to be merciful, it will show up in incidents, but it will always fail. The mercy of the Lord God over eternity will never fail. That's the story you're called to embrace. You might think you're good, but you're not nearly as good as you think you are. You might think you're better than David. You're not. And as much as I believe the scriptures teach that, I see that in my own life. I am horrible. Even though I exhibit mercy at times, I can never attain to the mercy that the Lord God showed me. And that's the story of mercy from the scriptures. And I love that we have a chance to do this incarnationally now. Because as we continue and conclude our worship today, we worship through communion. We take the bread and the cup that reminds us of the God of the universe coming down to the world and dying for our sin. So as we think of all of this tonight, as we take mercy and with us, or this morning, as we take mercy with us throughout the rest of the week, let's commune and see how that transforms us. Not just now, but in the way we see the world in which we live. Will you pray with me and then we'll commune. Heavenly Father, I thank you for peculiar Bible stories like this that we usually gloss over, that we skip because they're problematic. But Father, I think this very story of Scripture from 3,000 years ago teaches us so much about you and ourselves. Father, despite our best offerings, we're so flawed. There is no one righteous, not even one. In your eyes, however... You can look past our flaws because of the sacrifice of your son Jesus. That we are not viewed as, as just disgusting. That we're not dismissed randomly, but that we are embraced because of the sacrifice that your son Jesus made for us on the cross. And that's why we worship you. We praise you for your mercy and we remember that as we commune through the bread that reminds us of his body that was beaten and abused and abused and battered through the cup that represents the blood that shed that he shed all for our sin. Thank you God for a mercy that we cannot comprehend. Thank you. Thank you for changing our eternity. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.